From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. If, like me, you're a fan of Emmy-winning actor John Hamm and you happen to see a little show called Mad Men, you might have had a, a moment where you saw him early in the show's run where he had to slip out of uh, his paramore Midge's apartment and the police were in the hallways and he said, well, I've got my disguise. It was at that moment I thought, this guy could play Fletch. And so a little while later now, uh, theaters and soon on pay-per-view, he'll be playing Fletch in the second of the Fletch books, although the third of the Fletch movies is Confess Fletch. If I've confused people enough, I'll bring in John Hamm. John, thanks so much for doing this. <laughs> it's my pleasure to, uh, to be here, sir. It's, uh, it's nice to uh, finally uh, make good on the promise that I probably made, I don't know, 10 years ago, as we, as we discussed. Oh, at least, but I'm not going to hold it to you. Thank God nobody's recording this. But um, <laughs> I, I did think of that <laughs> about that moment, and I don't know if you remember that. I'm sure it's actually come up with you in other interviews before. At that moment where Don does that, I thought, yeah, that's a very Fletch kind of a move, basically sort of playing people's expectations of him and turning them into something else. Yes, I agree. Matthew Weiner on that show, obviously uh, the creator of the show, very, very smart guy, but also a wildly funny guy and got his start in writing sitcoms, basically. And so his uh, sense of humor pervaded every, every frame of our, of our show and a show that was ostensibly very uh, staid and very stoic and very dramatic also had a lot of, a lot of humor in it. And so that was, you know, part of that was the, the joy I had in working with with John Slattery as Roger Sterling was a big part of why I wanted him in to play my former boss as a nice wink and a nod <laughs> to Mad Men in, uh, in Confess Fletch. I have to ask, how old were you when you saw the first Fletch movie? I think it came out in 84, 85, so I would have been 13 or 14 years old. And uh, I, remember, I remember loving it so much. Uh, I saw it with like my 13 year old best friend or, you know, 14 year old best friend, whatever it was. And I just remember thinking like this, this movie is so good. I just can't get enough of it. And then I was like, wait, there's books. There's books that you can read and actually, uh, enjoy the, the, the story. And then uh, wait, there's a series of books. There's more than a book. So I was, uh, I was very, very pleased to, to find all of that out and then um, explore them at my own pace. Uh, and, then, and then, you know, sort of wait around for, for Chevy to actually get to making some more of these, uh, which he, he only made one more <laughs> that met with uh, decidedly mixed uh, reviews. Uh, the Fletch uh, <laughs> Lives, the, the second one. Um, but, uh, you know, it was... It was something that I has kind of been in, in the back of my head for some time. And uh, just this idea of there's more ground to, uh, to till here. There's more, there's more, you know, stories to tell. And it, you know, only took, you know, 30 some odd years. And eventually we got around to telling these stories. And so, you know, our operating principle was that we didn't want to do a, a Chevy Chase impersonation. You know, that was, the, that was what we thought was the, was the kiss of death. So we didn't. We went back to the books and we decided, okay, this is this is what we're gonna what we're gonna do, and you know that was that was our operating principle, and we were very 
lucky to get a chance to do it. You know, Bill Block and everybody at Miramax has has had the um, the rights to all of the novels. You know, and in success, we're going to get a chance to do some more of these, and it's been a super fun experience. And uh, I look forward to hopefully making some more of them. Well, it's really fun. I mean, you said so many things we can touch on, you know, like Matt Miner getting his start doing sitcoms like, you know, The Naked Truth. And all these sitcoms are really about sort of playing with people's expectations. And what McDonald did with those books is also taking this guy who seemed to be listening but wasn't. And one of the thing, fun things about watching you, especially in Mad Men, was Don Dripper often had this affect of seeming to be listening to people when he really wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of in his own world. And... There's a part of Fletch, too, that because he's so ahead of people, he's kind of not quite listening to them either. And I wonder, I hadn't thought about that until you started talking about Matt's background, uh, but also just about how much of that show is about sort of confounding expectations and, and what you do with Fletch is about that, too. Just actually sort of not really listening because you're somewhere else and, want, and you want to be out of where you are right now. I think what, what McDonald did in the books so effectively. He was a, uh, an investigative reporter of some repute, as, as we say in, in the book. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, in the, in the, in the film. Uh, I think he, uh, he realized that having that kind of access to, to people enabled you to kind of have this weird power over them. People would, would, would listen to you or give you kind of credence, and you could, you could basically tell them anything that they wanted. And mostly what people want is what they just want you to tell them what they want to hear, and so he found. I think he found that in in his work, he could really he could really get to the 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 truth or the information that he needed. You know, it wasn't always the most scrupulous uh, way to go, but it was it was certainly maybe the most effective. And I think that was that was what what Chevy in his sort of nineteen eighties way with all the wigs and the teeth and the funny voices and the funny names. That was what he was able to really communicate, was that kind of, if you just tell people what they kind of expect to hear, they'll give up the goods. I thought that was a really fun way into my version of this of this thing, just kind of, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really paying attention, or maybe I am, and I'm taking it all in, and then I'll tell you what you want to hear, and then I'll, I'll get what I need. Well, it's interesting because... As you're talking about this, too, I was just thinking about Michael Ritchie, who directed the Flesh films, also had this background of sort of dealing in sort of semi-absurd real-world satire, too, be it in The Candidate or Smile. Uh, and, and just having those two sensibilities together between him and Chevy Chase, that sort of like made it able to sort of bridge a gap because there is this kind of narcissism in the way that Chase plays that character. And I think what you do with it just sort of make it less about narcissism as much as about there is a particular goal he has at the moment. He's very goal-oriented. Otherwise, he's just kind of a slacker. Yeah, I wouldn't call him a slacker. I think he's he's got a... He has a job to do. And 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 we find out... I don't want to spoil the, the end of the film, but, the, you know, we find out that he's been sort of... He's been uh, hired to do... To sort of solve this mystery. And it's, and it's not the mystery we think, and it's not even the secondary mystery that we think, but he... As he's going down these these paths, and it's a wonderfully twisty, turny uh, story. But as he's going down these paths, he kind of oh, discovers that well, there's another sort of mystery that I should probably take a look at, and that I need to write that wrong. And and he's very much about sort of figuring things out. He, I think, he is a man who is who is uh, unsatisfied when there are dangling threads. He likes a very clean sheet. 
so that's actually a really fun thing. And I think, I think that kind of sensibility is really starting to resonate in, in why movies like Knives Out or, or Brana's adaptations of the Poirot stories are really, are really hitting right now because people, I think, are, are kind of jonesing for stories that actually have a resolution and and especially stories where where sort of people who who act up or who who, who break the law actually get a comeuppance. I think we have plenty of stories in the in the current uh, news cycle where people don't necessarily get their comeuppance, and it feels a little like it's just an impossibility that anything ever is going to be resolved. And then you you can go and watch Only Murders in the Building, or you can watch Confess Fletch, or you can watch you know Knives Out, and it's like it's satisfying. It's actually satisfying as a as a viewer and as a human being. You're just kind of like that's why we that's why we want stories. We want stories that have a beginning, middle, and an end. And the end is very important. It's almost the hardest thing to actually write. It's the treatment. My guest, who seems to have some weird idea that justice is not being meted out somewhere in the world, is John Hamm. He's starring <laughs> as Erwin Fletcher in Confess Fletch. It's the treatment you also hear at kcrw.com slash the treatment. As you were talking about that, though, I was thinking about there's kind of a similar thing happening when the first Fletch movie came out, where there's just kind of wild sort of looting of, of the judicial and, and executive systems by the then government, and we felt like we were in free fall. And he was somebody who was both making fun of the system and able to find answers. And I, I think you're right about that. I think people want somebody who is interested but not earnest, but has a curiosity. I think we're both uh, saying the same thing. I think that there is that appeal to somebody who who understands the system, understands that the system doesn't always work, and and sometimes you have to be a little extra curricular, extra judicial, extra something, but but make sure you're not really hurting anybody. That was the other thing that Greg Matola, the director, and I really made sure when we would have tone meetings and things about what we what we were really doing was like Fletch never punches down. That's not what gets him going. If anything, he he gives it to the man. But he never punches down, and I think we really, we really tried to make sure that that sort of edict was was always followed. Well, I think what's interesting about that too is just that Greg is somebody who, in this way we're talking about, is able to sort of like really sort of balance that those words between kind of the absurd and people seeking answers. You know, I said slacker, but I guess in lots of parts of Flesh's life, there's this sort of sense that he could be working harder than he does. There's also a really fun aspect to Greg's movies that I think you get a chance to play out here, which is very much this idea of Fletch is somebody who lives in the moment. And Greg's best movies are about characters who live like that. Absolutely. I think absolutely. This is this is the third project that I've worked on with Greg, and I absolutely adore working with him. And I hope to get the chance to work on on many more things as, as we move on. But you're right. You've uh, identified that. It's almost like an East Coast sensibility of like, well... You know, I'm just kind of I'm I'm going through life, but I'm also experiencing life, and I'm also participating in life. And it's I think Greg would say this. It almost comes from from kind of the Woody Allen uh, approach of like, what does he really do? It's like he doesn't really do anything. The movies aren't really about necessarily anything. It's it's just it's just fun and interesting to watch this character go through life. And obviously, there's a lot of problematic issues that we can talk about with uh, with the Woody Allen of it all at the moment. But but when you look at the films and uh, and and take the lens of the now off of it, you can understand that that, that was very appealing, especially in the 70s, of just watching this person kind of go through life and bump into things. I think that's a big part of, 
Uh, someone like Larry David's appeal as well, where uh, another person that Greg and I worked on on a film called Clear History uh, with. And so I do think Greg has a really finely tuned uh, antenna to really make sure that that tone comes across. I think you see it in Superbad. I think that that movie could have easily come off as like two kind of entitled kids that don't know what they're doing in over their head. And yet it, in his hands, and obviously with the tremendous performances of, uh, of both Jonah and Michael, as well as everybody else in that movie, that's a perfect movie as far as I'm concerned. But in, in, in the right hands, that became this really touching coming of age story about male friendship that you just don't really see. And it was, it was really lovely. I, I found it very emotional. I think a lot of people did. He has a, this divining rod for making movies about people who think they're looking for an answer and end up with an answer they were never expecting. And, and Fletch really kind of fits into that, and into that trajectory, doesn't it? Yes, yes. As much as he w- would tell people that he's 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 in it for the journey, I think that there's something that he he is searching for that he hasn't quite found yet, and I think that's also very compelling to watch. I think that was a big compelling component to um, to Don Draper as well. We Don was very much a person who was seeking what he thought were the answers and what he was spent his whole life telling people, selling people that was the answer, and yet in the end of it, he had to kind of really get rid of everything to then find out what it was he he truly desired. And it turns out it was being a really good advertising guy, selling Coke. Other kinds of Coke. We'll take a break. My guest who reminds me we're at the break is the former Don Draper, currently Erwin Fletcher in Confess Fletch. It's the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. Welcome back. There's a, I guess, not much to talk about with my guest, John Hamm, but we'll just continue anyway. It's a treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com. We're talking about um, his new film, Confess Fletch. And again, I just found the movie does end up at a point where that actually is much closer to the books than, than the Chevy Chase movies were, where there is an emotional beat that reminds us this guy may be skeptical, but he's not cynical. And the books really weren't that either. I think, again, we talked about Greg's Greg's touch and Greg's ability to kind of dial that tone in. And that's kind of what we really wanted to make it. The emotional moment you talk about at the end of the film is something that just d- didn't really exist in the in the Chevy versions. And that's that's on purpose. Those versions were very much an 80s comedy that had a very different tone, a very different style, you know, and we really uh, hewed much, much closer to the, the film we wanted to make, which was a little more intellectual, a little more... Uh, subtle in its approach, but but still funny and still compelling as a as a mystery. That's what we hope people take away, and I think that's what we really hope people want to continue to watch. You know, that's if you're not invested in the character first and foremost, then you probably won't be invested in the story, and you certainly wouldn't want to see a second chapter. So, uh, what McDonald did so great in the in the film, and I literally just got back from talking to uh, Patton Oswalt about about the books because he and I were both. Uh, big fans of the books growing up. It's such rich ground, you know, it's such rich material. There's so there's so many stories to tell that if we, you know, if we get it right and if, and if people really respond to to this version of, of that character and, and aren't so hung up on, oh, you know, are there quotable lines or, you know, are, are you Mr. Rosen Rosen or whatever the, you know, the, the, the quotes <laughs> are, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, 
there's a lot of, uh, of exciting, I think, uh, stories to tell. I think part of it too is, and actually this is the way that the Confessed Flesh is actually really close to the book, is that the people he encounters aren't just an audience for him, as tends to be the case for the Chevy Chase movies, because he's really cruising through the movie playing Chevy Chase. Yes. Whereas the Fletch you play is really engaged in the conversation with people. Yes, and has and has to be. And, you know, part of it is he's he's essentially, the, the, the reason the book is, then the movie are titled Confessed Fletch is because he's under investigation for murder. And it very much looks like he is the person who done it, so to speak. And, uh, and they're trying to get, get him to, in fact, confess. Obviously, uh, he, he did not do it, as we come to find out very early in the film, but he, it, it still looks like he did. That's a pretty good uh, dramatic engine to get the story going. That gives Fletch his reasoning to, to then actually have to engage with these people because he has to clear his name. I guess my memory of the book is that there's actually a pretty cool thing that the, the movie quotes sort of from the book is that he doesn't call the usual yes. emergency number, but he calls like a number number the police department because the murder's he already calls happened. calls it the main no line, you know, the and... thing you would call if your cat was stuck in a tree or something. It's a, it's a very uh, specific thing that tells you a lot about, or shows you a lot, I should say, about the character and what we're going for. It's like, this guy is not worried because he knows he didn't do it. I mean, you see a lot of guilty people who are telling you that they are guilty without telling you they're guilty. And this guy is telling you he is not guilty by, by doing uh, exactly what he does. It's the, the emergency's over. Somebody needs to come over and uh, let's let's find out who did this. Well, it's funny too, because that, that is right from the book, as, as I remember. Uh, and, and I just thought there are enough touches that come from the book that make me think, yeah, if, if the movies aren't about behavior, and I always thought that's kind of the problem with the second Fletch movie, is that at a certain point he's just showing people up and and you yeah, want it, essentially punching down you know there's there's a there's a scene in the second film where he's kind of making fun of the person he's sitting next to on the plane and you know that's that's kind of really what we didn't want that's not that, certainly not a part of the character it's established in the in the novels and and we just thought you know it's it's not really funny anymore that that kind of thing doesn't really play it's really never been funny but it's it's just it's just kind of showing off and it doesn't serve the story Part of what we, what I really liked about Greg's, you know, when he when he gave the script a pass, was that Fletch is wrong a lot of the time. Uh, he's not. He doesn't sort of tiptoe through life and is just always right and preternaturally intelligent. He's he's often incorrect, and then he's like, okay, well, that was uh, I guessed wrong. Let's 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 go. Let's figure it out then. That it's not that. Let's see what it is. And and then also he's he's got a little bit of the Robin Hood in him, and he he doesn't steal from the rich to make himself richer, although that happens to be a little happenstance. He doesn't really steal anything. He's, in fact, given, given the spoils of his, of his work, and he decides to, to share it with the people who helped him uh, solve it, which I think is a, kind of a great uh, message, for want of a better word. Well, I think what's interesting about it, too, is it feels contemporary in a way that doesn't feel knee-jerk. I mean, you were talking to him about him not being smarter, than a lot of people. And the fact is that half the women in the movie are smarter than he is, including one person who he, he completely underestimates. And I don't want to give too much away with, with saying that, but I thought that's one way of saying that, you know, the baton has been passed and that kind of entitled white guy can't exist anymore. Well, and part of it is kind of being okay with that. It's not going kicking and screaming. It's it's a little bit like, all right, you know, yeah, okay. So, uh, so this is this is the new, this is the new now, and and let's and let's understand that, and let's work with it rather than let's decry it and 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 fight against it. So, I think that you know, again, we we talked about it 
when we were kind of developing the idea of it, of just like, well, what if Fletch learns a lesson of some, of some without, you know, without it being an after school special, but kind of, he just kind of has his, <laughs> has his eyes open, you know? And it's, again, I think if we're talking about drama or, 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 or storytelling that actually, that actually has an impact, those are the things that kind of stick with you and you go, huh, all right, that character went on a journey and I really enjoyed spending time with it, with him or her or them. And I'd like to do that again in another capacity. Because the world has changed so much, not only since the books, but since those movies, there is an inclusion of that too, just even a notch was what media is like nowadays and that you can't really be a newspaper reporter anymore and what the world of newspapers is like and, and who inhabits that world. And, and, those things you're talking about with, with, with John with Slattery, that's when a few times he's actually listening to him because they have a history. Yes. And, and, and that history isn't spelled out so much as we, we sort of feel it in, in sort of emotional terms. And that really is a great grounding scene in the movie for me. Well, it's, it does a couple things. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, Greg and I talked about at an early stage of this, we talked about, well, maybe we should set it in the 70s, you know, as the book is set. And, and we thought, well... I don't, what do we gain? You know, it's, it's budgetarily, it's, it's a nightmare. It's a lot more expensive to, to shoot something in a period aspect, but, but I was like, what do we really gain? Maybe there's more to be mined from the fact that all of these institutions are crumbling and all of these institutions that, that sort of define these, these guys are, are not really as powerful as they once were. Maybe there's more story there. It, again, hopefully Slatty's got such a great handle on that character you know, there's there's kind of a wistfulness of like, come on, we had such a good time, it was some fun, and we did we got away with all this stuff, and we were really changing the world, and we were doing this stuff, and you know, Slatty's two for two in playing uh, newspaper editors, but this one's spotlight now, but um, uh, he's uh, <laughs> he's got that kind of pathos, and it's it's nice, it really lends itself, and as you say that, you know, the character is obviously based on the character that Richard Libertini played in the, in the first movie, his 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 former editor Frank. So we wanted a lot of like, you know, kind of grace notes of, of having this, this kind of uh, history between these two guys and not necessarily have to really spell it out, but, but understand that there's a shorthand there. And that's what, you know, being on a show for nine and a half years with somebody will, will give you in a scene. It's a treat when we're talking about history of my guest, John Hamm. He's the star of Confess Fletch. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. As you were talking about that too, again, I, I was reminded of, just that you can pack in both emotional and sort of comic material, the scene with Annie Momolo at the apartment, which is really just kind of wonderful and almost like a Marx Brothers piece, but yeah. very much about behavior rather than about somebody trying to send somebody up and also about his observational skills and him listening and not listening. I mean, that to me in some ways feels like kind of like almost the apotheosis of what you guys are trying to achieve in terms of effect and storytelling. Well, Annie... Annie deserves all of the awards for that thing because that was a that was a juggling act on a high wire while spinning plates and trying not to catch on fire. That scene, you're correct, has so much physicality in it, and she is so great and loose and funny. And I had obviously worked with Annie on Bridesmaids, um, although not in front of the camera, just as she is the co-writer of that film. So I knew her 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 comedic ability, and I knew how lucky we were to get her. To to play that neighbor who who in lesser hands obviously would be come off as kind of a crazy silly caricature 
but Annie somehow grounds it in this re- this this incredibly loopy, goofy person comes off somehow as real, and and that makes it even more fun. And I think Fletch is completely tickled by her and knows that she didn't kill anybody, but she is a, a possible source of information. So it's it's kind of like okay, well let's let's see what this is what this evening is going to bring, and and it and it does not fail. It doesn't uh, disappoint. I guess I find myself thinking too that uh, watching you as, as much as I have as an actor, and what's really interesting is when you play guys who are kind of self-absorbed who then have to deal with moments of reflection, and it happens a couple of times. Uh, the scenes with Lorenzo near the end, there are moments where he's forced to sort of take the world in rather than just sort of cruise, yes. and, and it helps to land the movie. And I wonder if those are moments you just said, "I've got to do this with this guy." We're just talking about a sketch character here. Yeah. No, you're correct. I think that's what, what makes the resonance a little more, uh, like you said, real. It, it, it takes it from the realm of, of just a comedy sketch uh, into something that, that feels three-dimensional and feels real and, and has an emotional attack. And uh, Lorenzo was, is wonderful in the, in the film as well and, and is able to kind of bring a real depth to her relationship, not only to Fletch, but to her, her father and, and the mystery that, that she's going, going through as well. And, and, she ably presents as this sort of very worldly, very sophisticated person, and then also ably presents that she could be someone who might be hiding someone and maybe shouldn't be trusted so much. Yeah, I mean, I guess I find myself thinking so much about what you get from the McDonald books in the second reading. They're deceptively easy books to read, and that there's a whole series of them, which there is this kind of emotional sort of maturation from book to book for the character. It's only in increments, <laughs> which is what happens here too. I mean, he's not a wholly different, better person by the end. And I wonder too, if that, that, that sort of tone that's sustained in those books. So he said, you want to be a little better, but not a lot better. You, you want to give yourself some somewhere to go too. And what, what McDonald also does is he, he kind of writes chronologically. Like he, Fletch ages and gets older and, and is dealing with different things in different places in his life. And that's kind of what you have to play. You know, no one, unless you're a superhero or, or, or a modern day version of a superhero, does age, he doesn't go through that process. And that's, that's a really fun thing. And I don't think you see it so much in, in uh, although I guess Star Wars did it with, with Luke Skywalker, but you, you don't really see it in, in a lot of, quote unquote franchises and i hope like i said i hope we get a chance to get to make more of these because it will be fun to sort of see flesh as he as he gets older and has different lenses on the world and his own and his own life he'll always be a very intellectually curious and a very um perceptive person but the interesting part is him figuring out himself it feels as sort of like echoing of the best Michael Ritchie films as it does of Fletch, the Fletch novels and the movies. And I think that's it's actually in itself kind of packed a lot into what seems like a deceptively simple frame. I think it's a it's a it's a 21st century iteration of this thing that I, that I really hope a new generation gets to feel like they're they're finding for themselves. Part of the fun of this though is just going into my storage and pulling out all those old Fletch books and just. I found myself like rereading half of them uh, because you can't really stop. Yeah, it, they're very compelling reads. I would encourage your listeners to uh, to visit wherever they buy books and uh, and and take the deep dive themselves because it's worthwhile. And then you never know, there may be an E sixty three AMG station wagon at the end of the line for you. You know, 
Yeah, I hope it's a short line. My guest, again, touchingly thinks people still buy books. It's John Hamm. Again, John, thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Elvis. Thank you. Emmy winner John Hamm. He also makes movies and is a man mad enough to realize his dream of reviving the Fletch franchise with Confess Fletch. Our next dreamer is director Brett Morgan, who brings the life of David Bowie to film with the documentary Moon Age Daydream. If you can't stay to hear that dream realize, catch that interview and other dreamers on bringing their ambitions to reality at kcow.com slash the treatment. Dream on with us. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome to The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. My guest, documentary director Brett Morgan, has been doing this show almost since I've had a show. It goes back to 1999 and a little film called On the Ropes. Since then, we know films such as The Kid Stays in the Picture, Chicago 10, Crossfire Hurricane, one of my favorites, Jane, of the Kurt Cobain montage of Heck documentary. His newest film as director is... Moon Age Daydream. Brett, thanks so much for being here. Always good to have you back. Thanks, Elvis. You know, what's interesting about this to me, I think is really what you do as a documentarian, is you literally and figuratively find a way to use people's voices. Going back to The Kid Stays in the Picture, which I obviously was inspired by that insane audio book. But since then, we can tell shifts in moods. We can hear, as in this case, the way somebody ages. But talk to me about using the voice as a way to transport us and keep us moving in, in these stories that you tell? You know, I've been trying to make films that aren't so much about the subjects, but films that sort of bring the subjects to life. Um, having them share their experience as opposed to others sort of describing it has been at the forefront of my work since the kids stays in the picture. At that time... The decision to do it was somewhat political in the sense that I was really responding to a movement in documentary away from objectivity. You know, there was um, a very kind of status quo um, relationship back in 2001 with nonfiction and trying to maintain some sort of objective that the only truth would be objective. And so both in allowing the subject to sort of tell their own story and in trying to create a visual style that is appropriate and brings the subject to life through things as disparate as as color grading and sound and montage and the use of dissolves or straight cuts or anything possible so that they, we can have an experience, an intimate and sublime experience with the subjects. There's a line in the film that kind of describes what you do perfectly when Bowie says, and I'm going to try to use this very pointed pause, I wanted to use art in a different way. The way you treat documentary filmmaking as art rather than as this ideal of objectivism doesn't really exist anyway. Yeah, it always seemed to me to just be more honest 
and exciting way to approach it. And I think, you know, that comes hand in hand with the idea that I've been pursuing, which is if you can present it in a book, why would you want to use the real estate to present it in a film? I mean, there are all reasons and there are, every film has different goals and objectives, I guess. So I'm not discrediting or, or dismissing others who choose to pursue the genre in that space. But in dealing with larger-than-life icons, particularly those who've been as well-traveled as some of my subjects, uh, the question I always return to is, what can I do? So what is the cinematic adaptation of David Bowie? And where I think Bowie became the perfect subject for me is that, you know, what is Bowie about? He is, uh, you know, he is mysterious, enigmatic, he's sublime. He is an artist who, I don't want to say he has adopted Brechtian, employed Brechtian techniques, but he certainly has invited the audience to participate in the understanding of his work. It's a very conscious act. And so Moon Age was very much constructed like that, to invite the audience to project, to not explain, but to allow the audience to feel is a greater inroad into understanding the mind and the, the motivations and the sort of um, direction that Bowie took. It's embarrassing to even begin to try to compare oneself creatively or artistically to David, but I do think the one area where we're similar is in this desire to explore the boundaries of our genres. And the subject when Bowie went, goes to Berlin in the film and he goes, you know, he says, I'm going to write a new language. It did not feel that different from what I felt I was tasked with in trying to figure out how to write a non-biographical yet narratively driven music experience. I was thinking about that section early in the film where he's in the middle of a show uh, during the a Ziggy a show. He picks up a blues harmonica and starts playing Love Me Do. And we realize, oh, the spiders are on the bass drum. <laughs> and he's doing the Beatles. <laughs> he's playing blues harmonica. And then he takes a really exaggerated formal bow. I mean, all these things are about responding to the audience and inviting the audience to, to take in the spectacle, but also telling them something bigger than what they're seeing on stage. But what they're seeing on stage matters in the moment. All this stuff is incredibly Brechtian. And I couldn't help but think about those things even before we get to the middle of the film when he starts talking about musical time and real time and combining those two things in a way that you never hear composers talk before. What I came to recognize as being critical in, in, in understanding Boy was how exact he was in illustrating, creating a text that would solicit that sort of input. And yet at the same time, if you don't want to participate, uh, you can just have a sublime experience. It's like a Kubrick film that you can, you can watch The Shining just on absolute surface and be think it's a horror film where you can dig into the subtext and think, realize it's a comedy. But that became very important. It, it wasn't accidental. There was an interview with them um, that I came across. I don't even know if I'm using it with um, Mick Roth backstage in the dressing room during the three months before the Ziggy Stardust came, album came out. And Mick said, so David, the, the record 
company tells me you have a, a space concept album coming out called Ziggy Stardust. Can you tell me about it? And David said, oh, no, man, it's, it's, it's not a concept album. I just mentioned Raygun and Moobeam in two songs, and that's it. They're just going to fill in the blanks. And the idea of designing art, which is not a, a novelty, it's, it's, but for me at least, trying to construct a narrative that uh, invites that relationship that doesn't feel too overtly wrapped in a narrative, which would have, I think, made it have less of an invitation to participate, was really the sort of challenge. You know, I've read somewhere where it feels someone in, I think, in the, the most bastardized sort of deconstruction of the film is it's a bunch of YouTube clips, you know, that are mashed together, which is, which is really kind of like the worst thing in a way that you could sort of uh, describe the film as uh, if you're me. And I think they were saying it sort of in a complimentary way, but the way it was designed is there is a very strong through line. It just was designed consciously to feel a little removed and hidden. I'm not going to use the word YouTube to describe the film, Moon Age Daydream. I think instead what it is, is it really is like, it's subject, David Bowie. It's about collage and mixed media, but every kind of media you can imagine, including the literal use of time that Bowie manages. My guest is, of course, the film's director, Brett Morgan, it's The Treatment, which you can also hear at caseherdivic.com slash The Treatment. Finally, what this all is about for him is no boundaries, including, at a certain point, no boundaries between days or minutes about just trying to find a way to remove boundaries, but also remind us that boundaries exist and we pay attention to them. They can guide the way that we think. And I feel like that in a lot of ways, this becomes a way for you to examine your relationship to the documentary and to cinema itself and the way that people can respond to documentary in almost pro forma ways and trying to get them to see that there's more to the film than just the frame. I think, again, this has been a, a sort of lifelong dialogue that I've sort of felt I've been having with myself, but ideally with you know others who see my work, that it is all about pushing the boundaries to get to the same thing that all everyone else who works in my field is and everyone who does fiction. We're all trying to get at the truth, not the truth, is it a singular, but a truth. And we're just trying to arrive there in a different way. What... I discovered making Moon Age Daydream was that my work prior to this has been, you know, about trying to be a virtuoso, trying to be a perfectionist. And ultimately, it feels less impressionistic and less honest almost than Moon Age, which where I really was forced through circumstance it wasn't um, just walking to the water until your feet can't touch the ground. I mean, I was drowning from day one in a whirlpool trying to figure out how to construct, again, the, the film from these fragments. And how does one construct an experience? Because the design of such, to me, was almost antithetical to the idea. It would be implying a sort of structure, a formal structure. So it was the whole experience was utterly baffling and took me to a place that I've never, ever been, which is lost, completely lost creatively, artistically, spiritually, and how to wrestle this object. And ultimately, if, it, if I was able to crack it, it, it came from 
incorporating from A being open and receptive to David's messaging about how to approach art and learning things that probably the most important was, you know, there were no mistakes. There's just happy accidents. And that may sound really trite and trivial, but go try it. Your instinct is to fix. You know, you see something that's, that looks off and the natural instinct is to clean it up. There's something that I learned from studying David, which is, as you were sort of getting, which is sort of just be in the now and things happen for a reason and art is imperfect. And again, this sounds very trite, but it was so liberating to employ in the context of trying to access and channel uh, both. It's so interesting because I just found myself thinking about the use of color in the film and how so much of it in the first half hour so it's suffused with this red, which is certainly led by his hair color at the time, but also what that represented and that is both danger and stop. In some of the montages, there's like flashing red everywhere. I mean, that starts to film off almost literally and figuratively in a really hot way, doesn't it? It does. I'll, I'll, I'll share with you a little story about the abundance of red. I don't know if you saw the Ziggy Stardust film when it came out. I saw that the UA6, which used to be in Westwood, South of Wilshire Boulevard, it was it just started getting into Bowie. And I remember I saw it in their main room. It was really cavernous. Or like three, it was Matinee, or probably three other people in the room. And uh, I remember the film being incredibly grainy, incredibly red, and very difficult to access Ziggy Stardust as he existed in my mind from looking at the record sleeve and the McRock photographs. And one of the things that I became intrigued by in approaching this work was the opportunity to paint Ziggy, to add colors and hues to the Pennebaker footage so that it would have the red, but it wouldn't be oppressively red. It would provide us with more of a cornucopia of colors. So to make the red not as oppressive, we added in some purples, yellows, and oranges into the shots of him in Free Cloud. And someone was asking me the other day about the cross-cutting to him at the uh, airport in that section. And that was done twofold. One to sort of introduce the idea of David singing about himself. To your point about time, all time happening in the now, I love this idea that there could be moments in the film where a young David would be singing about his future self and vice versa when we get to rock and roll suicide. I love the idea that he was taking this escalator like a kind of coming down to earth, if you will. Yet more importantly, there was an opportunity to introduce a different palette the blues and yellows, so we can paint Ziggy in a more robust um, rainbow kind of pattern. You know, and it also was um, something, and again, this may sound sacrilege, but the Pennebaker film, which I, you know, was one of the reasons I probably got into this to begin with, is a tremendous document of David Jones performing the role of Ziggy. You know, I think that's in part from the length of shots, the lighting, some of the you know, limitations of the camera, but mainly through what Pennebaker was there to do. And so in Mooney, there was an opportunity to not have David Jones playing the role of Ziggy, but try to bring Ziggy to life and to introduce the film with Ziggy 
the way that I think he was introduced culturally and to have that kind of land with that kind of same uh, sort of impact. Talking about colors and that Berlin section, for me, feels like so much of the, the photography you saw, we would see a Bowie coming out of Berlin, which is almost monochromatic. A lot of blacks and grays and that line between David Jones and David Bowie really seems to be in flux more than any other part of the movie. You know, it's interesting. I think that that period, he is the most David Jones, if you will, that I encountered until he met him on or until outside. People talk about the characters a lot with David. There's, quote unquote, a character that I feel hasn't been properly named, which is the professor, which is David in Berlin, or maybe the student is more apt. The themes that he was exploring in Berlin were the central themes of his work, themes related to chaos, fragmentation, and transience. So he was able to address them directly. Again, he would return to those same themes very poignantly in uh, 1995 when he reunites with um, Brian Eno. But there was this stripping down when he got to Berlin. One of the most exciting artistic voyages I've ever had was receiving the stems for his work in Berlin and stripping them down and listening to them myself. Because you hear these stories you know, of how the work was created, that it was a, a, you know, they would play games and that they weren't writing songs, that they were, each musician would go into the studio and record something completely disparate from what everyone else was doing. And you're like, yeah, really, that's probably, you know, a bit of an exaggeration. And then I went to put the stems on and you really, you put the bass on your, then you put the keys and you go, they don't go together. And you, you turn on a third instrument and you're like, I get, this is a cacophony. And then you get to like the seventh or eighth stem and you light them all up and you go, oh my God, it's sound and vision. It was really remarkable to bear witness. And again, and these are things that I guess somehow get incorporated into the film, but it was just more of a understanding the character and how deep they dove to explore these new avenues and realms. There was a, a moment in... 2018, when I was trying to figure out what direction to take the film, I, I kind of knew, but I was um, challenged when Bohemian Rhapsody came out and, and exploded. Even the, yeah, the Queen film, Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the Queen film, yeah. I, I saw it. I was working on Moon Age. I was completely blown away by the sound mix to the point that I ended up hiring Paul Massey and, his, and the sound design team to come work on Moon Age. And I don't even love Queen. <laughs> And I flew back to New York and I, I was meeting with his, uh, David's executor. And I said, I said, you know, there's two ways we can kind of approach this film. One is we can make it more like a jukebox musical, a little more fan friendly, very accessible, let people sing along to under pressure and their favorite Bowie songs. You know, we could probably do really well just with that alone. And I said, or the other thing we do is we stay true to David. And we, you know, it becomes more of an experimental film and maybe it will only max out at X amount of dollars, but it will be pure. And Bill looked at me and said, well, that's your problem. Um, <laughs> that was very much in keeping with everything that they would say to me. And the answer, Elvis, was so obvious, which is there's only, 
as far as I see it, one way to make a the Bohemian Rhapsody, if you will, of David Bowie. You can't do the Bohemian Rhapsody of David Bowie because that's not Bowie. The way to do it is to try to embrace the avant-garde instincts and hope that somehow that resonates as something pop and sensational. So if we think about Moon Age Daydream, there's a level to which an audience can engage with it purely as a sublime spectacle. And they can just allow it to wash over them, get immersed and think, wow, that was really kind of an enjoyable ride, if you will. And then there's another way that it's really asking and inviting the audience to lean forward and pay attention and to participate in its construction. My guest was clearly as much cultural anthropologist as he is Freddie Mercury, Disliker is Brett Morgan. His new film as director is Moon Age Daydream. It's the treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash the treatment. Brett, I've got to ask you this, though, because you're talking about all these different directions in which you were pulled. And I just wonder, when you you took sick in the middle of making the film, if that forced you to sort of really sort of step back and, and reassess your own relationship to your work, because Bowie certainly at these moments of that kind of devotion and neglecting his health. And uh, when I heard that you had taken ill in that way, it made me wonder if it made you sort of have to sort of exercise some perspective in the way that he did. So I had a heart attack on um, January 5th, 2017, right at the start of production. The heart attack did nothing to alter my perspective. I woke up, I was shooting a pilot for Marvel called Runaways. And, you know, after being in a coma for a week, the first words out of my mouth to the surgeon were, I need to be on set on Monday. So nothing changed when I, when I opened my eyes. It was about four to five months later that I started really digging into the archives. And I, I was at a place by that point where my doctors had freaked me out, you know, made it very clear to me that if I didn't make some changes, I was not going to live through the year. So it was from that vantage point that I started to hear David talk about his approach to art, which so succinctly mirrored his philosophy towards life deeply invested with a an appreciation for the brevity of time we have on this earth and for a kind of path for how one can lead a, the, a more fulfilling life, both as an artist and as a person. I wasn't sure how much time I had. There was a big question and I was doing some things. Working on the TV show after my heart attack was not good for the, the long run. And so there was... A part of me, and this is going to sound really sentimental, where I was like, if I'm not here, what was the message to my children throughout my life? Like when they reflect back, dad always used to say, and I don't have David's wisdom or his experience or his philosophy, but I realized that through him, I could present something that would allow people to kind of get closer to David, but more important than like a great Bowie song get a deeper understanding of their own self. And I think that having observed nearly every known piece of media, someone can say that I drank the Kool-Aid, but I, I walked into this project with my eyes you know, wide open for anything and really think that he might've lived one of the best lives of anyone, uh, certainly anyone I've observed or had access to. And it was by design. Um, so it, this was a real, really changed 
you know, how I want to live my life, what I want to do, and how I want to create art moving forward. I guess his new film, his new film experience is Moon Age Daydream. It's a film on David Bowie, not just about him, but a film on him as phenomenon and creator. Brad, always so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Elvis. Brett Morgan on assembling the guises of David Bowie into the documentary Moon Age Daydream. Next, The Treat, with director Gina Prince-Bythewood on a fugitive song that seeped its way into her subconscious. Or is that Fuji? It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell with The Treat. Director Gina Prince-Bythewood's newest movie is The Woman King. Her treat is a classic song by someone who once killed us softly. This is Gina Prince-Bythewood, and this is The Treat. The thing that comes to mind immediately, the very second (laughs) that uh, I think of treat and something that inspires me is absolutely... Lauren Hill, X Factor. That song has been so much a part of my creative process. I remember the first time I heard it. It's a song that literally goes into your soul and just fills you with this guttural pain. You feel everything. And it's the fact that a song has that type of power is a fascinating thing. You know it comes from truth. They've talked about where that song came from. And that probably adds to the intensity of it. There's so much in that title. There's so much in the lyrics, but again, it's her voice and the feeling, and you feel as she's singing, she is feeling every single inch of what she went through. And then to share that depth of pain with an audience, to let us into that aspect of her life takes incredible courage. You asked me what was missing. What? From basketball. You woke me up to tell me that? It's not fun for me anymore because you're missing. I use it for writing. I used it for Love and Basketball to write the last third of the film, the fourth quarter. And I put the song on repeat and put headphones on. And it's weird that I can write when there's lyrics going because oftentimes I could distract me. But for this song, I wanted to evoke that level of emotion inside of me to write the fourth quarter of Love and Basketball, so I literally put it on repeat, put that song on so loud um, that I could not hear anything else but be enveloped by that feeling and wrote and wrote and wrote. I'll play you. What? One game, one-on-one. <laughs> For what? Your heart. <laughs> to be as open no, and honest are. as that, as a singer, like, there's no character to hide behind. I can hide behind 
my characters. You can't as a singer. It is just you and a mic. I should have been there for you. I just didn't know how to do that and be all about ball. For me as an artist and my work, I want to be able to create content, ultimately a film that can make an audience feel as deeply as that song makes me feel. Um, and especially a love story. I'd love to create a love story that makes you feel as deeply as that song makes me feel. The Treat, Thorn Hill. No miseducation here from director Gina Prince-Bythewood, who recently gave us The Woman King. Rebecca Mooney produces and edits the show, which is mixed by Katie Gilchrist. Today, we had help from the able hands of Anna Buss and Laura Kandarajan. And next up, music from the equally able hands of Anne Litt, who's going to make your weekend better. Maybe she'll let us Lose Myself by Lauren Hill. To better days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. Treatment.